Section 38 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 3, edited by Charles F. Horne, Roster Johnson, and John Rudd. Final Division of Roman Empire, The Disruptive Intrigues, 8395, by J. B. Burry, Part 2. It was not only the European parts of Arcadius's dominions that were ravaged in 395 by the fire and sword of barbarians. In the same year, hordes of Transcaucasian Huns poured through the Caspian Gates and, rushing southward through the provinces of Mesopotamia, carried desolation into Syria. St. Jerome was in Palestine at this time, and in two of his letters we have the account of an eyewitness. As I was searching for an abode worthy of such a lady, Fabiola, his friend, behold, suddenly messengers rush hither and thither and the whole east trembles with the news that from the far maotis from the land of the ice-bound don and the savage massagatai where the strong works of alexander on the caucasian cliffs keep back the wild nations swarms of huns had burst forth and flying hither and thither were scattering slaughter and terror everywhere the roman army was at that time absent in consequence of the civil wars in italy may jesus protect the roman world in future from such beasts they were everywhere when they were least expected and their speed outstripped the rumour of their approach they spared neither religion nor dignity nor age they showed no pity to the cry of infancy babes who had not yet begun to live were forced to die and ignorant of the evil that was upon them as they were held in the hands and threatened by the swords of the enemy there was a smile upon their lips there was a consistent and universal report that jerusalem was the goal of the foes and that on account of their insatiable lust for gold they were hastening to this city the walls neglected by the carelessness of peace were repaired antioch was enduring a blockade tyre fain to break off from the dry land sought its ancient island then we too were constrained to provide ships to stay on the seashore to take precautions against the arrival of the enemy and though the winds were wild to fear a shipwreck less than the barbarians making provision not for our own safety so much as for the chastity of our virgins in another letter speaking of these wolves of the north he says how many monasteries were captured the waters of how many rivers were stained with human gore antioch was besieged and the other cities past which the halys the kidnus the orontes the euphrates flow herds of captives were dragged away arabia phoenicia palestine egypt were led captive by fear the huns however were not the only depredators at whose hands the provinces of asia minor and syria suffered there were other enemies within whose ravages were constant while the expedition of the huns from without occurred only once these enemies were the freebooters who dwelt in the Isaurian mountains, wild and untamed in their secure fastnesses. Ammianus Marcellinus describes picturesquely the habits of these sturdy robbers. They used to descend from the difficult mountain slopes like a whirlwind to places on the seashore, where in hidden ways and glens they lurked till the fall of night, and in the light of the crescent moon watched until the mariners riding at anchor slept. Then they boarded the vessels, killed and plundered the crews. Thus the coast of Isauria was like a deadly shore of Skiron. It was avoided by sailors, who made a practice of putting in at the safer ports of Cyprus. The Isaurians did not always confine their land expeditions to the surrounding provinces of Cilicia and Pamphylia. They penetrated, in AD 403, northward to Cappadocia and Pontus, or southward to Syria and Palestine and the whole range of the taurus as far as the confines of syria seemed to have been their spacious habitation an officer named arbicasius was entrusted by arcadius with an office similar in object to that which four and a half centuries ago had been assigned to pompeius but though he quelled the spirits of the freebooters for a moment arbicasius did not succeed in eradicating the lawless element in the same way as pompeius had succeeded in exterminating the piracy which in his day infested the same regions 
in the years 404 and 405, Cappadocia was overrun by the robber bands. Meanwhile, after the death of Rufinus, the weak emperor Arcadius passed under the influence of the eunuch Eutropius, who, in unscrupulous greed of money, resembled Rufinus and many other officials of the time, and, like Rufinus, has been painted far blacker than he really was. All the evil things that were said by his enemies of Rufinus were said of Eutropius by his enemies, but in reading of the enormities of the latter we must make great allowance for the general prejudice existing against a person with Eutropius's physical disqualifications. Eutropius naturally looked on the Praetorian prefects, the most powerful men in the administration next to the emperor, with jealousy and suspicion as dangerous rivals. It was his interest to reduce their power and to raise the dignity of his own office to an equality with theirs. To his influence, then, we are probably justified in ascribing two innovations which were made by Arcadius. The administration of the Cursus Publicus, or Office of Postmaster General, was transferred from the Praetorian prefects to the Master of Offices, and the same transference was made in regard to the manufactories of arms. On the other hand, the Grand Chamberlain, Prepositus Sacri Cubiculi, was made an illustris, equal in rank to the Praetorian prefects. Both these innovations were afterward altered. The general historical import of the position of Eutropius is that the empire was falling into a danger, by which it had been threatened from the outset, and which it had been ever trying to avoid. We may say that there were two dangers, which constantly impended over the Roman Empire from its inauguration by Augustus to its redintegration by Diocletian, Aschylla and Charybdis, between which it had to steer. The one was a cabinet of imperial freedmen, the other was a military despotism. The former danger called forth, and was counteracted by, the creation of a civil service system, to which Hadrian perhaps made the most important contributions, and which was finally elaborated by Diocletian, who at the same time averted the other danger by separating the military and civil administrations. But both dangers revived in a new form. The danger from the army became danger from the Germans, who preponderated in it, and the institution of court ceremonial tended to create a cabinet of chamberlains and imperial dependents. This oriental ceremonial, so marked a feature of late Byzantinism, involved, as one of its principles, difficulty of access to the emperor, who, living in the retirement of his palace, was tempted to trust less to his eyes than his ears, and saw too little of public affairs. Diocletian appreciated this disadvantage himself, and remarked that the sovereign, shut up in his palace, cannot know the truth, but must rely on what his attendants and officers tell him. We may also remark that absolute monarchy, by its very nature, tends in this direction, for absolute monarchy naturally tends to a dynasty, and a dynasty implies that there must sooner or later come to the throne weak men, inexperienced in public affairs, reared up in an atmosphere of flattering delusion, easily guided by intriguing chamberlains and eunuchs. Under such conditions, then, all at cabals and chamber cabinets are sure to become dominant sometimes. Diocletian, whose political insight and ingenuity were remarkable, tried to avoid the dangers of a dynasty by his artificial system, but artifice could not contend with success against nature. The greatest blot in the ministry of Eutropius, for, as he was the most trusted adviser of the emperor, we may use the word ministry, was the sale of offices, of which Claudian gives a vivid and exaggerated account. This was a blot, however, that stained other men of those days as well as Eutropius, and we must view it rather as a feature of the times than as a personal enormity. Of course, the eunuch spies were ubiquitous. Of course, informers of all sorts were encouraged and rewarded. All the usual stratagems for grasping and plundering were put into practice. The strong measures that a determined minister was ready to take for the mere sake of vengeance may be exemplified by a treatment which the whole Lycian province received at the hands of Rufinus. On account of a single individual, Tassian, who defended that minister, all the provincials were excluded from public offices. After the death of Rufinus, the Lycians were relieved from these disabilities, 
but the fact that the edict of emancipation expressly enjoins that no one henceforward venture to wound a Lycian citizen with the name of scorn shows what a serious misfortune their degradation was. The eunuch won considerable odium in the first year of his power, 396, by bringing about the fall of two men of distinction, Abundantius, to whose patronage he owed his rise in the world, and Tomasius, who had been the commander-general in the east. An account of the manner in which the ruin of the latter was wrought will illustrate the sort of intrigues that were spun into the Byzantine court. Tomasius had brought with him from Sardis a Syrian sausage-seller named Bargus, who, with native address, had insinuated himself into his good graces and obtained a subordinate command in the army. The prying omniscience of Eutropius discovered that, years before, this same Bargus had been forbidden to enter Constantinople for some misdemeanour. By means of this knowledge he gained an ascendancy over the Syrian, and compelled him to accuse his benefactor, Tomasius, of a treasonable conspiracy, supporting the charge by forgeries. The accused was tried, condemned, and banished to the Libyan oasis, a punishment equivalent to death. He was never heard of more. Eutropius, foreseeing that the continued existence of Bargus might at some time compromise himself, suborned his wife to lodge very serious charges against her husband, in consequence of which he was put to death. Whether Eutropius then got rid of the wife, we are not informed. Among the adherents of Eutropius, who were equally numerous and insincere, two were of especial importance. Osseus, who had risen from the post of a cook to be count of the sacred largesses, and finally master of the offices, and Leo, a soldier, corpulent and good-humoured, who was known by the sobriquet of Ajax, a man of great body and little mind, fond of boasting, fond of eating, fond of drinking, and fond of women. On the other hand, Eutropius had many enemies, and enemies in two different quarters. Romans of the stamp of Tomasius and Aurelian were naturally opposed to the supremacy of an emasculated chamberlain. As we shall see subsequently, the German element in the empire, represented by Gainus, was also inimical. It seems certain that a serious confederacy was formed in the year 397, aiming at the overthrow of Eutropius. Though this is not stated by any writer, it seems an inevitable conclusion from the law which was passed in the autumn of that year, assessing the penalty of death to anyone who had conspired with soldiers or private persons, including barbarians, against the lives of illustres who belonged to our consistory or assisted our councils, or other senators, such a conspiracy being considered equivalent to treason. Intent was to be regarded as equivalent to crime, and not only did the individual concerned incur capital punishment, but his descendants were visited with disfranchisement. It is generally recognised that this law was an express palladium for chamberlains, but surely it must have been suggested by some actually formed conspiracy, of which Eutropius discovered the threads before it was carried out. The particular mention of soldiers and barbarians points to a particular danger, and we may suspect that Gainus, who afterward brought about the fall of Eutropius, had some connection with it. While the eunuch was sailing in the full current of success at Byzantium, the Vandal Stilico was enjoying an uninterrupted course of prosperity in the somewhat less stifling air of Italy. The poet Claudian, who acted as a sort of poet laureate to Honorius, was really an apologist for Stilico, who patronised and paid him. Almost every public poem he produced is an extravagant panegyric on that general, and we cannot but suspect that many of his utterances were direct manifestos suggested by his patron. In the panegyric in honour of the third consulate of Honorius, 396, which, composed soon after the death of Rufinus, breathes a spirit of concord between East and West, the writer calls upon Stilico to protect with his right hand the two brothers, Geminus Dextra tu protege fratres. Such lines as this are written to put a certain significance on Stilico's policy, in the panegyric in honour of the fourth consulate of Honorius, 398. He gives an absolutely false and misleading account of Stilico's expedition to Greece two years before, 
an account which no allowance for poetical exaggeration can defend at the same time he extols honorius with the most absurd eulogiums and overwhelms him with the most extravagant adulations making out the boy of fourteen to be greater than his father and grandfather if claudian were not a poet we should say that he was a most outrageous liar we are therefore unable to accord him the smallest credit when he boasts that the subjects in the western provinces are not oppressed by heavy taxes and that the treasury is not replenished by extortion stilico and eutropius had shaken hands over the death of rufinus but the good understanding was not destined to last longer than the song of triumph we cannot justly blame eutropius for this no minister of arcadius could regard with good will or indifference the desire of stilico to interfere in the affairs of new rome for this desire cannot be denied even if one did not accept the theory that the scheme of detaching Illyricum from Arcadius's dominion was entertained by him at as early a date as 396, his position of master of soldier in Italy gave him no power in other parts of the empire, and the attitude which he assumed as an elderly relative, solicitously concerned for the welfare of his wife's young cousin, in obedience to the wishes of that cousin's father, was untenable, when it led him to exceed the acts of a strictly private friendship. We can then well understand the indignation felt at New Rome, not only by Eutropius, but probably also by men of a quite different faction when the news arrived that stilico purposed to visit constantinople to set things in order and arrange matters for arcadius such officiousness was intolerable and it was plain that the strongest protests must be made against it the senate accordingly passed a resolution declaring stilico a public enemy this action of the senate is very remarkable and its signification is not generally perceived if the act had been altogether due to eutropius it would surely have taken the form of an imperial decree eutropius would not have resorted to the troublesome method of bribing or threatening the whole senate even if he had been able to do so we must conclude then that the general feeling against stilico was strong and we must confess naturally strong the situation was now complicated by a revolt in africa which eventually proved highly fortunate for the glory and influence of stilico eighteen years before the moor of firmus had made an attempt to create a kingdom for himself in the african provinces AD and had been quelled by the arms of theodosius who received important assistance from gildo the brother and enemy of firmus gildo was duly rewarded he was finally military commander or count of africa and his daughter Silvina was united in marriage to a nephew of the empress alia flacilla but the faith of the moors was as the faith of the carthaginians gildo refused to send aid to theodosius in his expedition against eugenius after theodosius's death he prepared to take a more positive attitude and he engaged numerous african nomad tribes to support him in his revolt the strange relations between old and new rome which did not escape his notice suggested to him that his rebellion might assume the form of a transition from the sovereignty of honorius to the sovereignty of arcadius he knew that if he were dependent only on new rome he would be practically independent he entered accordingly into communication with the government of arcadius but the negotiations came to nothing it appears that gildo demanded that libya should be consigned to his rule and he certainly took possession of it it also appears that embassies on the subject passed between italy and constantinople and that symmachus the orator was one of the ambassadors but it is certain that arcadius did not in any way assist gildo and the comparatively slight and moderate references which the hostile claudius makes to the hesitating attitude of new rome indicate that the government of alexandrius did not behave very badly after all we need not go into the details of the gildonic war through which stilico won well-deserved laurels although he did not take the field himself what made the revolt of the count of africa of such great moment was the fact that the african provinces were the granary of old rome as egypt was the granary of new rome by stopping the supplies of corn gildo might hope to starve out italy the prompt action and efficient management of stilico however prevented any catastrophe for ships from gaul and from spain laden with corn appeared in the tiber and rome was supplied during the winter months 
Early in 398 a fleet sailed against the tyrant, whose hideous cruelties and oppressions were worthy of his Moorish blood, and it is a curious fact that this fleet was under the command of Meshezel, Gildo's brother, who was now playing the same part toward Gildo that Gildo had played towards his brother Firmus. The undisciplined nomadic army of the rebel was scattered without labour at Ardalio, and Africa was delivered from the Moors' reign of ruin and terror, to which Roman rule, with all its fiscal sternness, was peace and prosperity. The subjugation of the man whom the Senate of Old Rome had pronounced a public enemy redounded far and wide to the glory of the man whom the Senate of New Rome had proclaimed a public enemy, and in the meantime Stilicho's position had become still more splendid and secure by the marriage of his daughter Maria with the Emperor Honorius, 398, for which an epithalamium was written by Claudian, who, as we might expect, celebrates the father-in-law as expressly as the bridal pair. The Gildonic War also supplied, we need hardly remark, a grateful material for his favourite theme, and the year 400, to which Stilicho gave his name of consul, inspired an enthusiastic effusion. It may seem strange that now, almost at the zenith of his fame, the father-in-law of the emperor and the hero of the Gildonic War did not make some attempt to carry out his favourite project of interfering with the government of the eastern provinces, but there are two considerations which may help to explain this. In the first place, Stilicho himself was not the man of indomitable will who forms a project and carries it through, who is a man rather of that ambitious but hesitating character which Momsen attributes to Pompey. He was half a Roman and half a barbarian. He was half strong and half weak. He was half patriotic and half selfish. His intentions were unscrupulous, but he was almost afraid of them. Besides this, his wife, Serena, probably endeavoured to check his policy of discord and maintain unity in the Theodosian house. In the second place, it is sufficiently probable that he was in constant communication with Gainus, the German general of the Eastern armies and chief representative of the German interests in the realm of Arcadius, and that Gainus was awaiting his time for an outbreak, by which Stilicho hoped to profit and execute his designs. He had no excuse for interference, and he was willing to wait. His inactive policy of the next two years must not be taken to indicate that he cherished no ambitious projects. The Germans looked up to Stilicho as the most important German in the empire, their natural protector and friend, while there was a large Roman faction opposed to him as a foreigner. But as yet this faction was not strong enough to overpower him. It is remarkable that his fall was finally brought about by the influence of a palace official, AD 408, while the fall of his rival Eutropius, which occurred far sooner, AD 399, was brought about by the compulsion of a German general. These facts indicate that the two dangers to which I have already called attention, the preponderating influence of chamberlains and eunuchs, were mutually checks on each other. End of section 38. Recording by Squeaky. End of the Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 3, edited by Charles F. Horne, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd.